the prayers, fellow elders, thank you for the warm welcome you've given to me and to my family. We are grateful for your kindness that you've shown to us over the last week. It's been a whirlwind of a week, trying to get my feet on the ground, but I am excited to be here and I'm thankful for this. I'm excited that God has brought us to be part of this church family. We are excited about getting to know each one of you on a personal level and hearing your stories and hearing what God's doing in your life and with that, that's one reason I'm so excited to be able to be here tonight for the Thanksgiving service. And I hope you'll all be back for that tonight. Just a chance for me to, you've been listening to me a lot through the pastoral search process, a chance for me to be quiet and listen to you guys and hear from you all of what God has been doing in your lives. And I am really looking forward to that and hope to have the time to fellowship with you all tonight. I'm looking forward to what God has in store for us as a congregation in the months and years to come. And looking forward to seeing what the Lord is going to do. And I hope you have that sense of expectation, anticipation as well. Well, friends, we made it to Thanksgiving. We're finally here to Thanksgiving week. It's upon us. Christmas is around the corner. If you haven't noticed, radio stations, at least one or two around here, have already switched to all Christmas music. I discovered this week. Um, Stores have Christmas displays everywhere. Christmas is almost upon us. And next Sunday, we'll start the Advent sermon. So Christmas is almost to Gateway also. And just so you know, on Sunday mornings, where we're headed the next few weeks, is it'll be the Advent sermons. And we'll start next weekend with hope. And then we'll start working through that through the rest of the Christmas season. And for those of you who are not here Wednesday night, say, know where we're going in January. We're going to start on Sunday morning, starting with the Gospel of John. And we're just going to try to refocus on Christ and who Christ is and look at him throughout the remainder, throughout most of 2017. We're working verse by verse through the Gospel of John on Sunday morning. So that's where we are. Christmas is almost here. But Thanksgiving is upon us first. And I want to think this morning about Thanksgiving. Not the American holiday Thanksgiving, but Thanksgiving in the lives of believers. And I'm excited about today because we'll have a chance not only to look at God's word about what he says about Thanksgiving in the life of believers. We'll have a chance to celebrate that and practice that as we observe the Lord's Supper this morning at the end of the service, which is a Thanksgiving meal for what God has done for us in Christ, what we've just sung about. And then tonight we'll have another Thanksgiving celebration as we gather together as a body of believers here at Gateway to share a meal together and to share and give thanks to God for what he's done. So it's a day of Thanksgiving today, and I'm excited to be part of that. And so as we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question And that is this, for what do you most give God thanks? For what do you most give God thanks? If you look at your prayers and how you thank God, what is it that you are most thankful for in your prayers? Or perhaps, what do you most thank God for publicly in front of other people? And when when you're talking to someone, it's like, man, let me tell you what God has done in my life recently. What is it you tend to tell other people that God has done? What do you most publicly give God thanks for? What do you most privately give God thanks for? For many of us, it's often food. That's often where our prayers start, right? Prayer thanks to me, Lord, thank you for the food you provided. Amen. You know, we, we, we thank God for the food that's in front of us. Sometimes our prayers of thanksgiving may focus on recovery from illness or sickness, where God has answered a prayer on that. Sometimes our prayers of thanksgiving are from protection from harm. And there's that near miss on the interstate or some other form of protection where we've seen the Lord's hand upon us on that. Often our prayers of thanksgiving are when the Lord answers our prayers the way we could ask him to answer those prayers. Sometimes our prayers of thanksgiving are when the Lord gives us a new friend, a new relationship that encourages us. Sometimes our prayers of thanksgiving are going to be for even the salvation of a non-believer that we've been praying for. So a lot of times I think our prayers of thanksgiving are related to material things. The Lord gives us the raise we've asked for, the job we've asked for, the provision of a house or whatever else. And friends, it's good to give thanks for those things. The scripture is very clear in James 1 that every good and perfect gift is from above. The scripture is very clear to us as well in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we're to give thanks in all circumstances. But the reality is the things I've just mentioned are the ones where it's kind of easy to give thanks. Those are the ones that doesn't take a lot of effort to give thanks when we get the raise or get the new car or the sickness goes away or whatever else it is. But life isn't always 
like that. Because sometimes life doesn't go quite like we expect. We live in a cursed and fallen world. We live in a world of hardships, of trials, of sufferings, of pain, of difficulties. We live in a world tainted by sin, and we feel the effects of it. So what do we do as believers when the sickness doesn't go away? What do we do as believers when harm does come our way? What do we do in our, as believers when the Lord chooses not to answer prayers in the way we ask them, but gives us a different answer than what we had hoped for? What do we do when, instead of gaining a new friend, someone turns on us? Whether it's a friend, a co-worker, a classmate, or even most painfully a family member, they turn on us, and it's even more painful when they turn on us because of the gospel, because of our stance for Christ. What do we do when that hope we have for some material provision does not come through? Can we still give thanks in all those circumstances? And if so, how and for what? And so on this Thanksgiving, I want to take a little bit different angle on Thanksgiving this morning because I don't think any of us need reminders of how to give thanks when things are going well. But the reality is, even though I got to know some of you this week, we all have different trials and difficulties. We all have different burdens we carry. And how do we as followers of Christ give thanks, even in the midst of those difficulties? Because as believers, we really can give thanks in all circumstances, even in the trials. And not only can we give thanks, but we should give thanks, even in the difficulties. So turn to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, find it in your copy of God's Word or scroll to it on your Bible out there. And we're going to be looking at this text, all of chapter 1, the first 12 verses this morning. And like when I preached last time three weeks ago, I preached from the opening of one of Paul's letters. There to the church at Colossians. We're at the opening of another one of Paul's letters. So you're going to see some similarities here in this. Paul begins um, his letter to the people in Thessalonica. Just some background for you. This time Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. That was a major city in Macedonia. And interestingly, in timeline, Paul has just written 1 Thessalonians, and almost very quickly after, he sends 2 Thessalonians. It's not like he leaves a long period between these letters. He sends in the first letter, but then soon after he sends the letter, he gets some type of word that something is shaking this church. This church in Thessalonica is being oppressed, persecuted. Something is bothering them. People are losing hope. And so he quickly turns around and writes a letter to these people who are experiencing some of the difficulties of life, and he writes to reassure them and to focus them on the return of Christ. And in so doing, he provides us a helpful teaching on how we can give thanks, even when life does not quite go like we would expect. And so I'd like for us to read Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Would you mind standing in honor of the reading of God's word as we realize what a, what a blessing it is to have God's revelation to us? I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. If you'll just follow along, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 8. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, 
and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I do thank you. You've given us your word. Lord, we are thankful, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you've not left us wondering who you are. God, you've shown your truth to us. And I pray this morning, O Lord, that your truth of the word of God would come alive to us. Give me grace to teach it well. And Lord, just help us to look into your word and may it transform our lives. Even this Thanksgiving week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We may be seated. Um, There's one idea I want you to see from the text. It's a little bit longer idea this morning because there's two kind of subparts of it. But there's one Thanksgiving idea I want to see, one principle of how we can be thankful related to all circumstances in life. And here's the main idea, I believe, out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning, is that regardless of our circumstances, we should always give thanks for the evidences of God's grace and for the assurance that our just God will one day make all things right. A little bit longer main idea, but I believe this is what 2 Thessalonians 1 is all about. That regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what trial, regardless of what difficulty, regardless of whatever problem that we may have in this life right now, we should, we ought, we must always give thanks. Why? For the evidences of God's grace. And two, for the assurance that God who is just will one day make all things right. And we're going to walk through this again, but... The main idea, I believe, is regardless of our circumstances, we should always, always give thanks for the evidences of God's grace and for the assurance that our just God will one day make all things right. So I want us to see that in the text this morning. And so look back in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 for us here. As Paul begins the letter, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very customary introduction to a letter in the New Testament times. Paul begins with telling us who's writing. Paul, we talked about him a few weeks ago when I was with you, so you know who Paul is, the great apostle who wrote a good bit of the New Testament for us. We also have here Timothy. You're familiar with him because he's the one to whom Paul wrote the letters, First and Second Timothy, that we find in the Scriptures as well. He will also see Timothy in Acts. He was a young man who was an associate of Paul's and well-respected, and then Sylvanus. This is a longer version of a shortened name, and perhaps you're more familiar with a shortened name, and that's Silas. So this is, we believe it's the same guy that you see in Acts 16, who was a trusted leader in the Jerusalem church. This is quite a trio here, friends, of people writing to the church at Thessalonica. And they're writing into a church that is discouraged, that is being oppressed, that is in the middle of trials. And with that in mind, don't miss the significance of their greeting to the church here. Because reality is some of you in this room are shaken right now about trials of life. And if you're not in a serious stage where you're being shaken, you will be one day. And all of us will know someone who is. And so the way Paul begins, I believe, has a lot of importance for us on this. He doesn't just say hello to them, but there's a theological richness to what he says. In verse 1, he greets to the church of the Thessalonians. He doesn't stop there. In God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't miss that. Paul is reminding them of who they are in God. Friends, these are people who are shaken. This church that Paul loves is shaken. They're being oppressed. They're having difficulties. And Paul begins to remind them who they are in Christ. They are a church, an ecclesia, an assembly of people, but not just for any purpose. It's not a country club. They're gathered together in the name of God the Father. They're gathered in the name of Christ Jesus. Paul is reminding them of to whom they belong and to whom they serve and to whom he has called them. And with that foundation, then he expresses a desire for them, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not a perfunctory hello. 
He's praying for the shaken church to experience grace. That's God's goodness to people who are undeserving. He wants them to experience peace. That's the Hebrew idea of wholeness and wellness. They can only come from God. And so these shaken believers who are struggling about when Christ is coming back in the day, or these shaken believers who are being oppressed and finding difficulties, Paul is saying you can have peace in your trials. You can have God's grace at work in your trials, even if you're being shaken, even if you have difficulties. And so in verse 3, he begins now with the idea of thanksgiving. And just so you know, verses 3 through 12 is in, in the Greek one long sentence. Thankfully, the translators were kind to us. And added a few periods and commas and spaces along the way here. But this is one really long sentence. It's all really one big idea here. I'll point out this idea of verse 3. Look back at the beginning of verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. So again, in a lot of Paul's letters, this is common. He thanks God for them. But notice he does something different here. It's the only place you find Paul having a sense of obligation for thanksgiving. He doesn't say, I'm going to thank God for you. He says, we ought to thank God for you. It is right. There's some sense of obligation he feels to share this with them and to pray thanksgiving for them in this. This is what God expects. And reality is, these people needed to hear this. Because, friends, it's easy to give thanks with those early scenarios I mentioned. How easy is it for us to give thanks when our faith is being shaken? How easy is it for us to give thanks when we're in the midst of a trial or a difficulty? And so Paul knows he must, there's an obligation, he must thank God for them and set an example for them of thanksgiving even in the midst of difficulties. And how were they, and what difficulties were they facing? Well, verses 3 through 5 show us. One is more subtle and one is more direct, but look back at verses 3, 4, and 5. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. So notice there's two things here that let us know the condition of the church here, what they're experiencing. The first one, again, is more subtle. It's verse 3. And there's something missing in verse 3. If you think about in Paul's writings, Paul often speaks of three things together. So we'll try it. He speaks often of faith and what else does he speak of? Hope and faith, hope, and love. You see those three things together in a lot of Paul's ideas. What's missing right here? Hope. He commends them for their faith. He commends them for their love. But they, as we believe, they're struggling in their hope. They're facing some oppression. They're facing persecution. They're facing difficulties. And they're wavering in the understanding of when the Lord's coming back and they've lost hope. And so Paul writes to encourage them. But more directly to see what they're struggling with, look at the end of verse 4. He says, actually all of verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness of faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. So the church here is experiencing persecutions. This is attacks from without. These are attacks often that come because of your faith in Christ. And some of you have lost relationships because of your stand for Christ. You've lost opportunities because of your stand for Christ. That's what it's talking about, persecutions. Outside oppression because of a stand for Christ. But also afflictions. Perhaps some of your translations say trials. Some of your translations may say tribulations. It's interesting, the Greek word here literally means pressure. They were literally experiencing pressure from the situations of life. They were experiencing difficulties, the pressure that comes with life. And Paul acknowledges that. He acknowledges their suffering, their struggles in this, but he responds and shows them two things for which they can be thankful. In the midst of persecutions for their faith, in the midst of the pressures of life that they're feeling, in the midst of a loss of hope, 
Paul shows them two things which they can still always be thankful, even when life is difficult like that. And the first thing for which he shows them they should and ought to be thankful for is the evidences of God's grace. The evidence of God's grace. And friends, whenever life is tough, whenever things aren't going like we expect, regardless of those circumstances, we can always, always be thankful because there's always evidences of God's grace. There's lots that can be said on that, but Paul gives three evidences of God's grace in this text here. Look back in verse 3. He says, we all always give thanks to God for your brothers as is right because, number one, your faith is growing abundantly. Your faith is growing. Friends, even in difficulties, if you see faith growing, that is a grace gift from God. Here, growing is present tense, it's ongoing growth. As you know, faith is not just knowledge of God. Faith is knowledge that leads to action. It's a belief. It's a belief that changes us. And he's saying that in the midst of their trials, he can still thank God because they have faith. Their faith is not wavering. It's not just even plateauing. It's still growing in the midst of the pressures of life they're feeling, the opposition they are feeling. They're increasing in the knowledge of God. They're believing God's promises. They're relying on God's grace even in hard situations. So, friends, one evidence of God's grace in our life is that when we find ourselves in difficult times, we find our faith isn't wavering. It's still growing. And that is something for which you can be always thankful for of God's grace and praise Him for that. The second one is also in verse 3 there. He says, because your faith is growing abundantly. And second, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Man, what a description of what the church should be, right? And what a great prayer. If you want another prayer to pray for gateway of one another, this would be true for all of us. That our faith would be growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another would be increasing. If God would do this, it it would shake up all of Montgomery. Verse 3 here, though. For his faith was vertical, it was focused on God. Here, the love for one another is the practical, tangible outworkings of that. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 3, the previous book, Paul has prayed that their love for one another might increase. Back in verse 12. And now God has answered that prayer. And so, friends, if you find yourself in a difficult place, when you see love that you have in your heart for a brother or sister here, you can give thanks to God because it's evidence of his grace, even in the difficulty you find yourself in. And the last one he cites here would be in verse 4. He says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the church of the God for your steadfastness. This is your perseverance. This is you not being moved. Because they have faith in God, because they have love for one another, they can stand strong. And so when you find yourself, sometimes you look back after you've come through a trial, and you're like, how did I get through that? If you've ever been there and you've come through some difficulty, you're like, on the other side of the I'm not sure how I got through that. Well, you thanks to God for that, because God's the one who persevered you. God's the one who sustained you through this. So, friends, wherever we find ourselves, we can always give thanks to God for his grace. His evidences of grace, at least three examples, would be our faith, our love, and our perseverance in this. And, again, that's not an exhaustive. That's just three that Paul cites right here to the people at Thessalonica. And so we see that regardless of our circumstances, we should, we must give thanks for the evidences of God's grace. So let's go back to my first question for you. When you think about what you most thank God for, what is it? How much of our thanksgiving for God is focused on evidences of his grace? How much of my thanksgiving to God is focused on God? I'm thankful for the love I've seen through the body of Christ here. Lord, I'm thankful that you enabled me to love that person who oppressed me. Lord, I'm thankful that you gave me faith to not waver in the midst of that trial. Lord, I'm thankful that you persevered me through that. How much of our thanksgiving is God were focused and focused on the evidences of his grace? Whereas how much of our thanksgiving is focused on kind of the temporal things of this world? And how much of our thanksgiving is not just us having grace in our life, but one another? 
How much of our thanksgiving is us saying, Lord, I'm thankful that this brother in the midst of his trial is standing strong. Lord, I'm thankful in the midst of this incredibly difficult situation the sister is going through that, Lord, her faith is not wavering. How much of our thanksgiving is not just me experiencing God's grace, but for the body experiencing God's grace? Because Paul shows us that's something for which we ought to always give thanks. But that's not the only thing that Paul shows us we can always give thanks in the midst of difficulties. The other part of that is we can always give thanks, and we should always give thanks for the assurance that our just God will one day make all things right. That our just God will one day make all things right. And this is in verses 5 through 10. And I think this is a truth that I don't think about enough, that I think the church doesn't think about enough, and it has incredibly profound implications for how we approach difficulties in this life. So look back at verses 5 through 10. It's not the thing that, you know, I mentioned Wednesday night to those of you who are here about the value of preaching verse by verse through Scripture. If we preach verse by verse, we get to a text we would normally not pick out. I'm not sure this would be a text most, pastor, most of us as pastors would run to as our normal Sunday morning text. But this is, I think it's important for us as a church to understand. Verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. You may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And so God promises a future day when he will be the just judge and he will make all the wrongs right. Friends, if there is no promise of future justice, if there is no hope of God being just, then our sufferings are meaningless. If there is no promise of future justice, and if God is not just, then our trials have no meaning to them, and our difficulties do absolutely no good in our lives. If God is not just and there's no promise of future justice, then either one of two things happen when we face trials. If there is not a just God who will make all things right, when we face trials, either one, we despair. Or two, we take justice into our own hands. And either one of those leads to just more pain and more suffering and more heartache in our own lives. But thankfully, there is a just God, and he will make all the wrongs right. But for friends, for non-believers, this is, this is terrifying. This is not something for us to lightly consider. I mean, this is terrifying. Look at verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just, again, God is a just God, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And I mentioned to those of you who are here Wednesday night that one of the things we're going to do starting in March of 2017 on Wednesday night is we're going to look at the attributes of God. We're going to take a different attribute of God each week and look through what we learn about the nature of God. Because in our culture, we get obsessed with the love of God. And that is part of God's character and nature. But the justice of God is something we don't often think about, but that is very real and very true. And verse 6 reminds us of this, that since God considers it just to replay with affliction those who afflict you. And the people who have persecuted God's people will one day meet the God who they are ultimately persecuting by persecuting his followers. And that'll be a terrifying day for them. Notice the imagery in verses 8 and 9 as well of what happens when Jesus comes back with his mighty angels. Verse 8, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. Friends, that's a terrifying thought to realize that those who reject God will ultimately receive as punishment God's rejection of them. 
Those who reject God will ultimately, in the final judgment, receive God's rejection of them. And this is terrifying. The terms used to describe this are fire and mighty angels and vengeance. And so, friends, when it, you're in the midst of a trial, and particularly you're in the midst of some type of persecution where someone's opposing you for your faith, maybe there's some wrong, some big injustice that's been done to you or to someone you care about, remember, there is a just God, and he will make all the wrongs right one day. If you're having trouble remembering that, it's a whole sermon from another day, but Psalm 73, I encourage you to read and meditate. In Psalm 73, Asaph, who was the worship leader for King David, Asaph was struggling, and he begins with, why do the wicked prosper? And he wrestles with what we wrestle with. Why do some of these, sometimes these people who seem to so hate God, why are their lives full of ease and prosperity and all these things? And he wrestles with that, and I commend that one to your reading, and maybe we can preach on that one one day. But friends, we can be thankful in these situations, because for believers, this thought of justice is a day of hope, actually, for us. Because we don't have to face the justice of God, because Christ has already borne it on our behalf. What we sung about just a few minutes ago. For believers, when Christ returns, it's a day of hope. It's not just that those who have oppressed us will, be, will, will, will receive justice. But look at what God does for his people who have endured the trials and the difficulties. And friends, this is something for which we can give great thanks. Look back in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. You may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. What is this? This what? This, their perseverance in the previous verse is evidence of God's righteousness. How? Because God looked on Christ, and Christ took upon him all the sins of his followers. And so, friends, in Christ, if we're in Christ, we don't have to suffer the just judgment of God. We have new life in Christ. It's what Romans 8 tells us, that he's predestined us, he's called us, he's justified us, and he will one day glorify us. And so their perseverance is evidence that God will certainly see them to the end. But it's even better than that. So, Friends, if you're in a difficult place, you can always give thanks, not only for God's grace gift now, but look at what he promises you as a believer for the future. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 tells us that Jesus will grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. God promises relief and rest for his people when they've had after these afflictions. So remember the word I told you for affliction was pressure? The word for rest here literally means no pressure. The God is promising a day is coming, friends, where there is no pressure, when there's no temptation, no opposition, no persecution, when there's no trials, no difficulties, no sickness, no death. All of that will one day go away. Friends, that is something for which we can be thankful for in this. But something that I fear gets missed in a lot of segments of American Christianity, God doesn't promise that for today. This is a promise for the future, for the day of the Lord. Verse 7, he will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when, doesn't promise a day, God could do it today if he wants to, God's sovereign, but when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. His promise of rest is not necessary for today, it is for when Christ comes back. And so friends, the hope for us for which we be thankful in difficulties is not just that we have evidences of grace in our life, even in the difficulties, but that there is a day coming when those difficulties will be no more. And the day is coming when those who have wronged God's people and never repent, when justice will be served. And so, friends, I want us to be thankful for that. As well, let me just say in passing, there's not, there's not time for it today, but verses 11 and 12, why would God do this? Why would God offer to us forgiveness? Why would God offer to us rest, peace, no pressure, why would God make all the wrongs right? Is he doing it just because we're so great he wants to do it for us? No. 
Look at verses 11 and 12. Again, this is a sermon for another day. But to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that, why is God doing all this? So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, friends, that's a sermon for another day. But why is God doing this? For his glory. Yes, we experience the joy in it. It's not about us. It's about him and his glory, his grace being magnified. And so I want to give a challenge to yourself and to me as well here. For those of you who are experiencing some trial, some pressure, some difficulty in life right now as you come into Thanksgiving week, I want to remind you, God remembers you. God hasn't forgotten you. And if you're in a difficulty where someone has oppressed you or wronged you, there is a just God and he will make it right one day. Take hope and be thankful for that, my friend. But also realize the day is coming when God will give you rest. When there's a day coming, no pressure, no more sickness, no more trials, no more difficulties. And you can be thankful for the assurance of that day that in Christ you know you have that day coming. But for those of you in this room who are in a season of ease right now, I want to challenge you as well. If you're not in a place where you're facing opposition right now, in a place of ease, what are those things for which you're most thankful because the thing that is most important in our life is not the material blessings we often focus on. Again, there's nothing wrong with giving thanks to God for those. But is our thanksgiving directed at temporal things? Or is our thanksgiving, like Paul, focused much more on God's grace gifts in our life? Is it focused much more on the blessings of brothers and sisters in Christ, of the body of Christ? Is it focused more on His presence in our life? Or is it focused more on financial things and other material things? So I just want to challenge you to ask God for grace this Thanksgiving while you still acknowledge all that you have because it's come from God, but to make your focus of Thanksgiving much more about God's greatness, His grace gifts in your life, things of eternity, not things that are temporal. And may God give us grace to let that occupy a larger focus in our thinking. As I was studying for this and reading on this, I came across a quote from a guy by the name of D.A. Carson who's a writer and a theologian. It just really convicted me and challenged me. And I want to share that with you as we come to a close of the teaching from Second Thessalonians 1. Just listen to what D.A. Carson has to say. He says, For what do we commonly give thanks? We say grace at meals, thanking God for our food. We give thanks when we receive material blessings, when the mortgage we've applied for comes through, or when we first turn on the ignition of a new car we've purchased. We may even sigh a prayer of sweaty thanks after a near miss on the highway. We may utter a prayer of sincere and fervent thanks when we recover from illness. We may actually offer brief thanksgiving when we hear that someone we know has been converted. But by and large, our thanksgiving seems to be tied rather tightly to our material well-beings and comforts. By and large, our thanksgiving seems to be tied rather tightly to our material well-beings and comforts. The unvarnished truth is that what we most frequently give thanks for betrays what we most highly value. Did you catch that? So think back to your, the question at the beginning. What do you most give thanks to God for? The unvarnished truth is that what we most frequently give thanks for betrays what we most highly value. If a large percentage of our thanksgiving is for material prosperity, it's because we value material prosperity proportionately. That is why when we turn to Paul's thanksgivings, they may startle us. They may even seem alien to us, for they do not focus on what many of us habitually cherish. Paul gives thanks for signs of grace among Christians, among the Christians he is addressing. So what do we thank God for? Elsewhere, Paul tells us to set our hearts on things above. Colossians 3.1 If what we highly cherish belongs to the realm of heaven, 
our hearts and our minds will incline to heaven and all of its values. But if what we highly cherish belongs to the realm of earth and the merely transitory, our hearts and minds will incline to the merely transitory. And so, friends, as we come to Thanksgiving, my desire in my heart and your heart is that God would give us grace to set our minds on things above. Again, it's fitting to give God thanks for everything we have. Friends, we didn't choose to wake up this morning. God woke us up. We didn't choose to have our hearts beating. God kept them beating. We didn't choose to have the physical strength and health to be here today. That was God's grace gift to us. And so it's right to give thanks for those things. It's right to give thanks that we have shelter over our head and all all the many blessings we have, food on the table. But friends, if that's all that our thanksgiving is for, we're missing the heavenly. We're missing the setting our mind on the things above. And so can I challenge you as I challenge myself this Thanksgiving? Yes, give thanks for all that we have. But let God give us grace and let's beg God for grace that he might set our minds on heavenly things so that our focus of thanksgiving as a body of believers and individually, this thanksgiving, will be much more heavenward than earthward and its focus. One of God's grace gifts to help us keep a heavenward focus is the gift of communion, the gift of the Lord's Supper. It helps us keep an eternal focus. It helps us remember our salvation. It helps us be thankful. And like what Paul did for the people in Thessalonica, It helps them remember that the Lord is coming, that that future day of justice is coming, that future day of the Lord. And so for an invitation time this morning, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. And my challenge to you this morning is that we come to the Lord's table, as we take the bread and the cup, remember the the body and the blood of Christ that's made a way for the forgiveness of our sins. I'd encourage you just to, to stop and pause for a minute and ask God for grace to have a heavenward focus this Thanksgiving. Ask God for grace in the midst of even taking the Lord's Supper to remind you of what's most important. That God would give, stir your hearts to where your greatest thankfulness is for things above more than things on the earth. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we close today, can I encourage you and ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. You take the Lord's Supper regularly so you know the meaning of it. But in case there's a visitor in the room or... Perhaps you haven't thought, reflected on it recently. I want to just remind us about what the Lord's Supper is all about as we, as we come to take it this morning. So 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 23, just to refresh our memory of what this is all about. For I see from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. We had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, Let a person examine himself, and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Let me just pause there and just say, friends, what we're taking is, is a serious moment of reflection on this. And so I just encourage you as you come forward to get the, the bread and the cup. When you sit back down in your seat, take a moment. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. Make sure you're, you're right before the Lord, that you have a clean account for the Lord, not because of your righteousness, because of what Christ has done. But confess any known sins. Make sure you're seeking afterward. And make sure you pause and remember what this is all about. These elements, when you see the juice, when you see the bread, remind us of the body and blood of Christ. The songs we sang this morning remind us of the gospel. 
of Christ's death and burial and resurrection for our sins. This is to remind us what we sung about earlier. That the only way, friends, when that day of the Lord comes that we saw in Second Thessalonians, and when the only way that we can stand is not because we're good moral people. The only way we can stand is because we've received Christ's righteousness. His blood was shed. His body was broken for us. We might stand in the judgment. We might know him, be able to enter that place of peace and of rest. So this is partly a remembrance of what he said, but it's also an anticipation of what is to come. Verse 26, for often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're remembering forward that this day of the Lord that we talked about here in 2 Thessalonians is coming, friends. And we can be thankful for that. So we take the Lord's Supper. This is for anyone who's a follower of Christ. It doesn't matter what church home you're from, but if you are a born-again follower of Christ, if you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've repented of your sins and your confidence is in approaching God, not because of your works, but because of what Christ has done for you, you are welcome to this table. If that's not you, we just encourage you when we come, take it just to sit still and talk to the Lord and pray about it. There's no shame in sitting where you are. Perhaps there's some sin in your life that you need to deal with. There's strong warnings here about coming in an unworthy manner. There's no shame in sitting there and saying, Lord, I need to talk to you right now. I need to pass on this. Do whatever business you need to do before the Lord as we observe this. So let me pray for us, and then some of our deacons are going to come, and we're going to start from the center sections coming forward to receive the bread and the cup, and then the outer sections will come. After you receive the elements, you'll return to your seat. Sit there. You don't have to take it right away. Spend some time talking to the Lord, asking Him to help you be thankful for things of eternal things this morning. Remember what Christ has done for you. Be thankful for your salvation. Focus on the return of Christ. Thank Him for that day that's coming. I encourage you to think about those things. Pray to those about the Lord. And then take it whenever you're ready at that point. But join me in prayer and the deacons will come help us in observing the Lord's Supper. Father, we are thankful for your many grace gifts that are at work in the church. Father, I am thankful for your kindness to us shown in so many ways. Lord, we are thankful for our salvation this morning. And Lord Jesus, I am thankful that you have loved us so that you're willing to die on that cruel cross that our sins might be forgiven. Lord Jesus, we remember the sacrifice you made for the forgiveness of our sins. We long for your return on that day when we do not have to fear your justice, but when we stand forgiven, clothed in your righteousness and all the wrongs will be made right and when we have peace and no pressure, Father, we long for that day. And so this morning as we remember through the Lord's Supper, as we long for your return, would you do a fresh work in our hearts? And God, would this morning as we observe the Lord's Supper, may you make us truly thankful for everything that we have Because, Lord, we know every blessing has come from you. So we're thankful for this grace gift of the Lord's Supper. And, Lord, we pray now as we observe it that you would do a fresh work in our hearts as you remind us of the gospel of Christ this day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.